watching the rise and fall of human systems. Light radiates in a pattern of expanding waves. Is there life elsewhere? How does it affect us? These are big questions. Yet the meaning of all this to us is far from ordinary. You're listening to Transistor, a science series from PRX. Hey, I'm Christina Agapakis. I'm a biologist and a writer. And for these episodes of Transistor, we're going to be talking about microbes. Microbes are so hot right now. It seems like almost every day there's a new study coming out about our microbiome. That's the general word for the trillions of bacteria, fungi, and viruses that live in and on our body. Researchers have identified a family of microbes that appear to help those who have them in abundance stay lean. These bacteria do wonderful things. Things that can cure our bodies from superbugs. These studies suggest that changes in the microbiome are linked to all sorts of health problems, from Crohn's disease and irritable bowel syndrome, to obesity and diabetes, all the way to anxiety and depression. The hope is that the more we understand about the microbiome, the better we'll be at changing it and keeping people healthier. In the meantime, we're going to hear a lot more about microbiome studies in the news. And we're also going to see more and more people trying to sell us stuff. Microbiome-boosting products that promise to deliver billions of bacteria straight to your gut. But I'm thinking, if we're only beginning to understand how the microbiome works, can we really know that these products actually do what they say? We're going to look at the microbiome from a lot of different perspectives, but let's start by talking about microbes and fermented foods. To do that, we're going to talk to some of my favorite microbe enthusiasts, and we're going to learn about how these foods are made, how microbes play a role in the way they taste, and how they might be affecting our health. So let's start here, an industrial kitchen in Queens. A small group is cooking up a big batch of tempeh. The tempeh mastermind is Barry Schwartz. So right now we're cooking soybeans. The beans have to be cooked al dente. We're bending over a giant pot full of bubbling, beany water. Um, It sort of looks like the surface of Jupiter or some sort of like (laughs) gaseous planet. Um, But it smells really nutty. Yeah, you know, this is traditional. This is what tempeh would be found in Indonesia. This is traditional tempeh. For me, tempeh is both delicious and fascinating. It's a traditional Indonesian food, and it's also kind of like the blue cheese version of tofu. It gets its flavor from a fermentation by a fungus called Rhizopus oligosporus. The fungus will eat the soybeans and grow to fill the spaces between them, creating a fungal network called a mycelium. So we're, we're going to Barry's car to get the fungus. Right. You know, I, I actually, some friends have been correcting me about calling it fungus because they think it, like, scares people that it's fungus. So we actually call it culture. It's so much nicer. Well, I love fungus. So I know, I'm, but you're I'm an accept, pro, you're I'm an, pro-fungus. <laughs> right. But you're an exception. You know, you're like the, the general public, when they hear fungus, I, I think they think of, like, athlete's foot, you know, like, things like that. They don't... Okay, so for, we'll, we'll call it, we're going to the car to get the culture. <laughs> right, that's so much better. So this That right fungus, or culture, or whatever you want to call it, will get added to the soybeans after they've been cooked and dried. Barry's pulling out a bunch of Ziploc baggies. So, this is Rhizopus oligosporus. This is four grams. So it's amazing that this little amount of culture will make 40 pounds of tempeh. 
It looks sort of like very fine, like dark sand. Right, right. It's actually grown on rice and dried and ground. Barry got started making tempeh when he was on cooking duty at a yoga ashram. These days, he's kind of like a cross between a hippie chef and a scientist, experimenting with different kinds of cultures and ingredients to get new flavors. Barry told us that there's only two places to get good, reliable Rhizopus oligosporus. It made me wonder how diverse tempeh and tempeh cultures are in their home country of Indonesia. So I called my friend Colin Cahill. What time is it now in Indonesia for you? It's 11.40 at night. (laughs) Okay. It's always a good time to talk about microbes. Do you have a favorite fermented food? Um, Well, tempeh, obviously. Colin's an anthropologist, and he's been living in a small town in Indonesia studying coffee producers and other kinds of food. In terms of the tempeh I've been exposed to in the U.S., there's just like such a broader range of flavor tones here, flavor notes. How so? Um, I mean, for me, I get almost like cheesy notes sometimes here. Oh, wow. Um, Like sharp, sharp, cheesy notes. (laughs) How many different kinds of tempeh can you find like in a supermarket? There are certain areas that are more famous for having more varieties, and those are particularly in central and eastern Java, where if you go to a market, you can find dozens. These local tempehs aren't made in big factories, but in home kitchens. It's really different from the way that Barry makes his tempeh and from what we're generally used to here in the U.S. There isn't necessarily as much hand washing. <laughs> there's, no, there's no gloves. You know, it's done in a kitchen that some might find rustic. This wouldn't pass any of the safety standards that we have here, but Colin thinks that it does add something to the flavor of the tempeh that they have in Indonesia. Here, you still get a variety of yeasts from the bodies of the producers, from the air, from the local environment that you wouldn't necessarily get from kind of large industrial factories. So in other words, it's not just the culture of rhizopus that matters to create the flavor. It's also the wild microbes from the environment and from the tempeh maker's own microbiome, from the bacteria that's actually growing on their hands. Tempeh is a single culture food. In the end, it only has that rhizopus fungus in it. So from a science perspective, it's relatively easy to study. But there are foods out there that are much more complex. So cheese rind is sort of amazing because it's this wonderful, reproducible microbial community. So you have many different species of bacteria and fungi all living together to form this this wonderful and delicious microbial community on the surface of a cheese. Rachel Dutton is a microbiologist at Harvard, where she has the enviable job of studying cheese. She actually starts her experiment by going to this amazing cheese shop down the street. Her lab looks pretty much like any molecular biology lab, except that the microbes that we have growing in petri dishes um, are coming from cheese, and they often sort of smell like cheese. Cheese has somewhere around 10 different types of bacteria living in it. And so Rachel thinks by studying these simpler ecosystems to give us a better picture of how bacteria interact in even more complex environments like the human gut, which can have hundreds of different kinds of bacteria. Despite the fact that we've been uh, eating cheese for thousands of years, we don't really have a good understanding of the microbiology of the cheese rind. She and her co-authors collected more than 100 different cheese samples produced in 10 different regions around the world. 
I know that they worked really hard on this project, but I'm also super jealous that they got to taste all of those cheeses. We thought going into it that maybe the geography or where the cheese is made would play the biggest role in what type of community you have. But what we found is is that it was more the environment that the cheesemaker is creating on the surface of the cheese. So the salt and the acidity and the moisture, those are the things that, that really um, determined what type of community you end up having. So it sort of suggests that cheesemakers have a lot of uh, power and a lot of control, and they're sort of acting like microbe farmers. This is my favorite thing about Rachel's study and the, my favorite kind of concept from it, that I, I love the idea of the microbe farmer. It's like the cheesemakers are really carefully grabbing each species of bacteria and carefully placing it to make the right kinds of flavors and tastes. So now when you, when you eat cheese, are you thinking of the species that you know are identifying the flavor with? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so sometimes, you know, we'll go to a cheese shop and taste the cheese, and I think, oh, okay, well, there's a lot of Deberomyces on that cheese. I can, I can taste it and smell it. <laughs> yeah, so Deberomyces is a, is a yeast, and it has this sort of interesting kind of floral roses aroma to it. I also love that there are yeasts that taste like roses. Yeast and bacteria can make a huge range of flavors from floral to putrid. And Rachel has become the go-to microbiologist for chefs like David Chang of Momofuku and Jim Leahy of Sullivan Street Bakery in New York. She helps them understand how fermentation creates great flavor. But some of Rachel's research also looks at the effects that these bacteria have beyond taste. Part of the study was we fed uh, human subjects uh, different types of uh, aged cheeses and salamis, and we could actually see the microbes from those fermented foods uh, transit through the digestive tract and actually survive all the way through. So it's possible that they could have some impact on the gut microbiome or on human health. Do those microbes stay in the gut uh, for any period sort of after eating the, the fermented foods? No, it didn't look like they actually were colonizing the gut, um, So, which makes sense because it's not really the right kind of environment for them. But they definitely survived and seemed to be active while they were there. So the bacteria and the cheese and the salami make it all the way down through the digestive system and then out into the poop. But we don't know what they're doing while they're on their way down. That's a big question for probiotics. Things like yogurts and cheeses and other microbe-rich foods that add a lot of good bacteria to our digestive system. If those bacteria aren't actually becoming a part of our microbiome themselves, what are they doing? There are still tons of really interesting questions out there, but it's just another reason why I'm fascinated by the microbiome. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be excited about fermented foods, their flavors, and the potential that they have to be beneficial to our health. My name is uh, Sandor Katz. Uh, I am a fermentation revivalist. Sandor Katz wrote the book on fermentation, Wild Fermentation, and he's inspired a generation of fermentos, people who experiment with fermentation in their home kitchens. I was realizing as I was reading through Wild Fermentation like that my 
love of fermentation started really by the molecular diagrams of the chemical transformations that happen like, as you get to lactic acid. In my work, I work now a lot with artists and I've been working on sort of the art of fermentation. I'm in doing, I did a big project where uh, I made cheese out of bacteria from people's toes and armpits and things like that. I made cheese from uh, Michael Pollan's belly button was one of the... Oh, no, I saw, I once, I, once, I once started a sourdough with somebody's oh, yeah. uh, um, uh, arm armpit bacteria awesome. yeah when was that <laughs> oh more than 10 years ago oh man i wish i knew about that i would have cited you it's true i made cheese out of body bacteria like colin's story of wild microbes making their way from the tempeh maker's hands into the food there's lots of ways that human body bacteria are connected to food bacteria maybe we really are what we eat anyway sanders love for fermentation started early he told me that when he was a kid growing up in New York City, he used to binge on sour pickles. This man has never met a fermented food he didn't like, though even he admits that some take longer than others to develop a taste for. A lot of the flavors of fermentation are acquired tastes. I mean, even thinking of some of the most, you know, widely consumed staples of fermentation. I mean, beer, you know, what? whoever likes beer the first time they taste it, you know, coffee, you know, so just many of the, of the flavors of fermentation are things that really are, you know, acquired tastes. We can really fall in love with these flavors of fermented foods like beer, wine, cheese, coffee, and chocolate. But we usually don't want to think about the bacteria and fungi that make those flavors possible. We're still grossed out and even scared by the idea of microbes and germs. So we rely on our code words like culture. You know, anyone who might be listening to this, you know, has been raised in the context of what I would describe as the war on bacteria. And it's this sort of, you know, ideological indoctrination that bacteria are bad, bacteria should be avoided. I mean, we can't think of bacteria as our enemies anymore. You know, we can't function in the world without these bacteria. You know, they enable us to digest food and assimilate nutrients. What we would think of as our immune system is largely the work of bacteria in our intestines. It's actually a really interesting coincidence that the scientist who first discovered a lot of the crucial parts of the immune system in the late 1800s, named Elie Metchnikoff, did all this really interesting and pioneering work on the immune system for which he won the Nobel Prize. And after he won, he started to get really interested in bacteria and yogurt and how bacteria might actually be good for us. And he equated it with lactic acid bacteria. And, you know, the, I mean, the model that he proposed, which, you know, as I understand it in my, you know, casual layperson's way, is that the bacteria that you eat in the yogurt, you know, basically take over your intestines and, um, you know, improve your overall health. I would say that it's, it's, it's certainly not as straightforward as that. So the trouble is, even more than a century after Mechnikov first started talking about probiotics, we still don't know a lot about why or how probiotics help the good bacteria outweigh the bad in our guts. Part of that is because there's just so many microbes in the gut. You can add millions of good bacteria by eating some types of food, but that's no match against the trillions of bacteria that are already there. So while the health benefits of probiotics are being touted more and more loudly to mainstream audiences, Sander is really adamant that there are limits. He's been HIV positive for decades, and he talks about how fermented foods have been part of what's keeping him healthy, but he's also really clear how it's only one small part of his overall health. 
I have read articles about myself in which they say that I claim to have, you know, cured AIDS with fermented food. So, I mean, let me be totally clear that like I have not cured any diseases by eating fermented foods. So, I mean, I think that we have to like not project upon these foods that they are a silver bullet that's going to solve all of our problems, but rather that they are an important component of, you know, living a healthy life. I think that this is the key to understanding the microbiome. It's an ecosystem, and that means that there's never going to be a silver bullet. Keeping microbes in our lives and our guts with fermented foods is just one small part of maintaining a healthy ecosystem and a healthy body. We can be passionate advocates for microbes and fermentation without them actually being miracle cures. What if there were other ways, more radical ways, to re-engineer your gut flora? ways that really did start to look like a miracle cure. Not through eating fermented foods, but from the other end. That's right, we're talking about poop and fecal transplants. That's next time on Transistor. The Transistor Podcast Series is brought to you by PRX. Subscribe to more episodes on iTunes and visit our website, transistor.prx.org, for more photos of tempeh, sauerkraut, fungus, and other delicious microbes. This episode was produced by Carrie Donahue, Shruti Pinamaneni, and mixed by Tim Einenkel. The Transistor team includes PRX Chief Content Officer John Barth, Content Coordinator Genevieve Sponsler, and Lily Bowie. This episode was supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information on Sloan at sloan.org. 